I'm Logan Bishop from Belmont University. And I'm Jenna Spinelli from Penn State. You're listening to Higher Ed Social, part of the Connect EDU network. Malik, welcome to Higher Ed Social. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So uh, excited to talk with you today about online learning and some of the things that um, Unity College has been doing in this space and, and your vision for where things could go throughout the rest of COVID and beyond. But before we do, um, can you tell us a little bit about Unity College and, and how you came to your current role? Absolutely. Um, Unity College's uh, tagline is America's Environmental College. Uh, we are a college whose mission is about uh, environment and sustainability. Uh, one of our claim to fame is we are the first college in the world to divest our endowment from um, a fossil fuel portfolio, um, uh, you know, something that we're very, very proud of. Um, we are undergirded by the liberal arts and sciences, but all of our degrees are really in the kind of the ecology sphere, the biology sphere, in, in training students how to be well-rounded students, uh, you know, as part of that liberal arts and science core, environmental stewards, but career-ready or graduate um, college-ready. Um, um, and that's kind of uh, our claim to fame. And... Um, for the first uh, 40 years of our lives, we were predominantly a residential campus. That's kind of, you know, like everybody else, you know, uh, predominantly uh, freshmen, coming of age, high school graduates. Over the last uh, seven years, we have really expanded our audiences to uh, involve adults, place-bound students, master's degrees, um, really looking at affordability, access, and flexibility in a new way, breaking down the very concept of there's only one way to educate. The concept of the environmental sciences um, um, came late in my career as I, uh, you know, I learned about it in college. And before that, I did not realize um, it was a career. I did not realize uh, that um, so a lot of the, 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 the atrocities, the, the lack of social justice, the lack of... Um, really good planning about our food, our energy, our agriculture, all over the world is predicated from this idea that we really do not, did not understand our relationship with economy and the environment. So I became, I started to look at my life saying, oh my God, if only I had known this when I was younger, if only, oh, that's what that meant. And um, so I came to Unity College. Uh, I've, I had many different roles. And when our president uh, retired, um, the board of trustees asked me to stay on as I was the executive vice president, chief academic officer, chief financial officer. It's a small college, kind of didn't all, all of it. Um, and so took on the presidency and I've been here ever since, totally in unity. I have been here almost eight years, about five years as president. Not to you know, bury the lead too, too much here, but under, under your leadership, some pretty big changes happened at the college this year. The changes uh, started uh, around 2014, um, and I think it became much more relevant this year. Um, 
in, you know, in, in around 2012, just before I was hired, the board of trustees and a number of individuals really realized that with the demographic shifts, with the issues with graduation rates, and uh, not just in unity, across the nation, and loan default rates across the nation, and uh, uh, kind of the, the advent of technology, that while our curriculum and the environmental mission is very, very relevant and will always be, um, how we deliver it, who we deliver it to, who has access to it, well, really uh, was a concern. And we wanted to make sure that we were ready as an institution uh, uh, to adjust to the changing uh, demographics, the changing times and the like. And so we started to really look at um, how can we make this more accessible? How can we make this more affordable? How did, uh, uh, you know, how can we make this more flexible? We are not a heavily endowed institution like the Bowdens and the Harvards. We are not a tier one institution. Um, we graduate working people who want to work in the green economy. And we realize, though, that the demographics of those who are able to afford it uh, did not really, wasn't really representative of what the world actually looks like. We, the first thing we did is we created uh, an entirely new structure called the enterprise model. And so by investing in a lot of technology, we started to really get um, this idea that we were able to use technology uh, to, to, to support our faculty and support our students. And then said, well, you know, there is this whole market of adults. There's this whole uh, market of military students. There's this whole market of a lot of folks who started college and didn't finish. Most colleges our size is an all or nothing. And to move the entire college to support each and every one of these audiences seemed really ridiculous to me. So we created a structure called the enterprise model with which those faculty and staff members who supported the four-year residential model could continue to do so in that model but we were able to create these new strategic educational business units with their own calendar, their own tuition, their own pedagogy, their own cadence, their own system of governance that allowed us to operate in multiple arenas, not forcing all students and all faculty and all staff to be all things to everyone. And so as we started to build those, um, we, we, we had the residential campus called Flagship. We had distance education, um, you know, call, uh, uh, which was predominantly online with some low residency programs. Once those two were doing well, we said, you know, there's something missing here. And what we started to realize is that afford, how do we tackle affordability? So we, we started to look at this idea that what if one course was full-time? and students could get federal and state aid and not have to take five courses. So we went to non-standard terms. What if a student could drop out and had in over a year in eight terms, just had to do five or six to, be, to graduate in time and not this idea that if you fail, you know, if you drop out, you're done for a semester. How can we lower costs instead of cut costs? And so we built an infrastructure that allowed us to look at the outcomes of what a student needs to graduate. And we started to very carefully 
say, what if we were modality and location agnostic? Hmm. Right? What if we were to build these outcomes where the students got to decide if they, which part of their program they wanted to take online, which part of their program they wanted to take face-to-face, -face, so that it wasn't an all or nothing, or what higher education normally does is says, these are online, these are face-to-face, -face, you choose. So when COVID happened, um, all of our distance education students, did, they were not affected in any way. Well, then we realized asking the residential model of 15 weeks, five courses at a time, what most schools are doing, you know, trying to put it in Zoom and try to, to replicate a residential model using technology was not a good idea. So we very quickly, unlike many other schools, decided in May that we were, we were going to go remote for a year while we sorted out what actually the impact of COVID is going to be and created something called the hybrid model. Now, unfortunately for us, the, the residential part, the face-to-face -face part of the hybrid model is a, is a little bit of hiatus because of COVID. But because of our five-week terms, because of, you know, we abandoned this whole idea of discounted tuition, we just give a true tuition. Uh, and we basically said the entire college, regardless of which CBU you are in, is gonna have this very straightforward tuition, one course equals full-time, let the students be wherever they are and then reopen when we can instead of send people home or what, or no, no, stay in your dorms, but do it remotely. Like, I don't understand that. But it was the investment in the last five years in the technology, in the instructional designers, in the non-standard term, in the flexibility that allowed us to make all of these pivot and not be rushed or try to take a residential face-to-face -face schedule and push it online. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as a result, today, we are at 1,200 to 1,300 students. Mm. And of course, there are some who are lamenting the lack of face-to-face, -face, but the moment we get a handle on COVID, boom, right? Uh, well, I think that's going to be fine. And because of this model, we, we've decided to decentralize our operations, allowing us to be in multiple locations post-COVID. And those who want to replicate a four-year model can... It, they can design it, but those yeah. who want completely online can do that. And, but I think most students want something in between mm -hmm. where some residency, some online, you know, life happens, allowing them to really create their college experience in a way that about 15 years ago was impossible. And yeah. so that's when we created the hybrid model and that's where we are today. So how has that changed <clears throat> you know, the student support side of things, you know, when it comes to, you know, advising or, you know, uh, you know, student life, you know, stu yeah, student absolutely. life, student affairs, all of that kind of interesting stuff. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, this is, it also depends on which audience you're talking to. So for our distance education students who are predominantly adults, military, place bound, working folks, very little because, we adopted uh, three years ago a professional advising model where every student gets a professional advisor, allowing them to use their faculty more as mentors and facilitators and, and then, then, than advisors. So by having the professional advisors, that person becomes the face of the college for these students. And you know, whether it's the tutoring, whether it's all the social services that we offer there, that hasn't changed. What has impacted is our residential. 
right? Because we are currently remote, we no longer have the varsity athletics, um, you know, but with some of the changes, you know, we, we have our work-study students who are tutors and now tutoring online. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we have lost in, in, in a little bit with the residential part of our institution is kind of that coming of age residential experience that I actually don't believe they would be getting right now, even if they were here, because you are seeing what is happening at those colleges who are opening at all costs and then asking students to basically shelter in place and do remote. So yes, some of our juniors and our seniors in the residential program, I would say are the most affected personally by this kind of this kind of residential community that 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 they're used to but when it comes to the tutoring the support that they would get and the curriculum they're going to finish on time we significantly change our tuition model to actually make it more affordable and the average student at the unity college residential program now in hybrid pays about five thousand dollars less a year Mm. so some are really jumping on that and saying oh wait i can actually take a few more courses and graduate sooner but as you can imagine, some really miss the, the um, you know, going out and watching the basketball game and the soccer game. And, and we've got some really excellent student clubs and organizations, first responders and, and the Frisbee, that piece. But, but I believe that uh, them being with their local communities and us doing what we do best, supporting them with their advisors, support, we do programming. We using Teams, using Zoom. We do games night. We do we, a, a couple of weeks ago. We did a um, a film series that we would have normally done in our auditorium using Zoom, and we had some faculty members do the commentary with Q and A. So I think all of the critical elements that our students need in order to graduate, communicate, and 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 really get that experience is intact. But we have kind of lost that resort arm that we call the residential experience, which was about a third of our student body anyway, mm-hmm. not the entire student body. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you've just been describing a lot of changes and I can't help but think about faculty. I think Logan can, can probably attest to this as well. Faculty sometimes don't take very well to change that happens quickly. And, you know, they're used to delivering their course the way they like to deliver it and, and all of these mm-hmm. kind of things. Um, so how, how has that piece of things been over the past couple of years as you've worked toward this kind of hybrid, um, uh, uh, hybrid model? Absolutely. Um, it's, it's been mixed, to be very direct. Um, but the model that I had created, what it allowed is instead of forcing all faculty members to, to be all things to everyone, I, I created an opt-in model. So when I created the distance education program, I said to my flagship faculty, who wants to dabble, who wants to experiment, who wants to learn this model? And a number of them said I. And they moved into DE, and then I backfilled their positions in in flagship. When I said, who wants to do hybrid, a number of faculty members jumped into that and others didn't. Um, That allowed a little bit where as long as your strategic educational business unit was viable, you can, you don't have to change. And we also found that some faculty members were really good with the face-to-face, some faculty members were really good with the non-standard terms, and it allowed a bifurcation and a separation and opt-in where if all the faculty members had to be one group uh, agreeing or disagreeing as a body, I think some people would have felt the pressure 
You know, right. people talk about, uh, you, know, um, you know, breaking from the tribe. I, um, they, were, they were given the opportunity to jump into a different part of the college where uh, at regular small private colleges, they would have either had to convince everyone to do that or they would have had to leave. And right now, most of my distance education faculty, most of my administration, most of my, uh, hy- all of my hybrid faculty were once the residential faculty. And then there were those who just thought that this was the, the uh, you know, it, it was just not something that they, that they were willing to do. So until COVID, there was a coexistence of the residential did the residential, the online did the online, the hybrid did the hybrid. What COVID did is it just basically um, made it impossible for the residential folks to do residential and some opted into hybrid, some refused. Uh, looking at an old model of what a fa- faculty should do and be and all of that, and just morally opposition. Uh, and, and so we have mixed results, but as you can imagine, uh, um, those who are supportive, those who are on board, tend to get a lot less attention than those who are angry um, and those who don't like change. So Yeah, sure, the old squeaky okay. wheel, right? That's how it works. Yeah. Hmm. So... Can this model work in other, like at other small private liberal arts? Like, are you hearing from other other presidents or, or chancellors or whatnot? They're like, yeah, we want to try to do this because we're facing similar situations, whether COVID specific or not. And I guess related to that, does it, does, what does that mean for you if more colleges start going this route? Do you worry about losing any type of competitive advantage that you might have because you're kind of unique in the market right now in terms of how everything is structured? Quite the contrary. I don't want to be the, the last record store in Manhattan. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I, you know, if, 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 if actually these colleges would get out of their own way of a governance system that hasn't worked since 1985, don't get me wrong, the model works perfectly for the elite. The, the model works perfectly for the heavily subsidized. The model doesn't work for the other 2,500 colleges who are dependent on Title IV revenue generation and the like. So no, if more people would get past the ritualistic nature of what higher education is supposed to be, which has predominantly been for the privileged, those who can get big loans, and the few of us who are able to get scholarships from the, um, um, then maybe more people would graduate, maybe more people would be educated, maybe the concept of education would not continue to be in question, then, then maybe we could be a catalyst for change. I would love, don't get, get me wrong, like, uh, you know, colleges who are, uh, like protecting assets, you know, like I'm just going to use like Harvard or, or Bowdoin College. They don't need this model. This model wouldn't work for them and I don't expect them. But for those of us who are revenue generating, the idea that the only real student is a freshman, the idea that if you don't come live on a campus for at least two years and put your life on hold, you're somehow not a real student. The fact that, um, only those who can actually get a loan or are lucky enough to get a scholarship deserve this education. Isn't that the antithesis of why we started educating education in 1965 with the GI Bill and all of that, that every American should get an education? So I wish that these folks would get out of their own way and, 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 and look at their college's governance and the antiquated nature of it. Maybe less of us would close. 
Too many of us are closing because we would rather close than actually put the student first. So no, I, I hope, I, I wish people would pay attention mm -hmm. instead of looking at this uh, as somehow a violation of a, of a historical ritual that, that only works for the 5%. You know, I, I really, really, I really love your, your just enthusiasm about all this. Um, so my question is what made you want to do this? And, 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 and that's a, you know, who wants to be a university president, especially right now? Um, it, it's, it's not the best time to be one, to be frank. Um, it's not fun being one. I've never, I've never met a college president that has been totally happy with everything that they've done. I mean, not what they've done, but, you I know. know what you mean. So, so tell us, like, oh. what made well, you want to do this? Absolutely. Well, it started with the idea that when I was a kid, there was only two ways out of where I was. Because I didn't, you know, I didn't come from a family that could afford college. So it was either through sports or scholarship, right? School or, or athletics. And growing up, getting into higher ed, getting an education was the way out. And I was one of those lucky few from my home that got an education. But as I got into this, I begin to realize just how, what's the best word to say this? How privileged it was, in, even though we all talk about access. Right. And I was naive enough to believe that everybody, we talk about student first, we talk about access, we talk about affordability. But I started to find out that really, for many colleges, that was more rhetoric than reality. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, but I, it took me a long time to, to, to realize that because in my mind, I thought I was trying to help all of the higher ed because they just did not know how to do it. When in reality, mm -hmm. they did not want to. Mm -hmm. right? We talk about access, but we really are exclusive. Most of our processes are about exclusion. We don't meet students where they are. We, you know, don't get me wrong, students have the right to fail. But we have an obligation to meet them where they are and not just, right? So we, we are still acting like, you know, they should be thankful instead of, oh my God, it is our obligation to educate them. So one of the jokes on my campus is I am, a, I am the COO with CEO privileges. <laughs> so, um, and so for me, solving these access problems, this affordability problems, these flexibility problems, uh, understanding the governance structure and how that in its own right is counterintuitive to the very nature of access. When we talk about supporting students, but we only want those with uh, the highest SAT scores, when we talk about diversity, but we create policies where we know half of the multicultural first-generation Americans can't get the $30,000 loans, how do you reconcile that hypocrisy? And nobody there speaks against the establishment, so we all accept the emperor's clothes. So you've given us lots to think about, I think, um, ways to maybe see 
things differently and and you know hopefully listeners no matter where they work in their respective universities will be able to maybe think about where they might fit into this the framework you've outlined and so as we kind of you know wrap up here um can you tell us quickly where you see this going moving forward where do you see unity next year and in five years down the road further I would love in, you know, in five years to truly build out a curriculum that is outcomes-based, uh, that allows a student to determine the best approach to, uh, in order to achieve those outcomes to get the degree. I would also like to look at, for those students who care about the environment but might not want a degree, what are the kind of micro-credentials and upskilling that they would need I would like to become where the idea of an environmental education it becomes the new standard because I don't think any degree, any education uh, in this country or in this world, nobody should be graduating and not understand how their career, their approach interacts with the environment. We are in the climate change century. The biggest problem, the biggest challenge of our time is climate change and climate change itself is a symptom, right? It is a symptom of overpopulation. It is a symptom of poor planning. It's a symptom of bad agricultural policies. It is a symptom of water shortage. It is a symptom of all of the behaviors that we do because we do not understand our relationship with the economy and our relationship with the uh, planet. And that is a very different approach than the current mind's eye of the environmental uh, sciences, which is activist, back to the lander, exclusive, predominantly white uh, trust funds. So for me, success is that America's environmental college becomes a gateway for people of all races, all genders, all ethnicities, all creeds, all socioeconomic to have a an understanding of the value of their relationship with their communities and the environment with which they need to survive. And how can we make that affordable? How can we make that accessible? And how can we make time and money be the least barrier to their success? And, and we do that by being modality agnostic, by being uh, um, 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 location agnostic, and by truly focusing on the outcomes and the competencies that a student needs to become career ready, but a true education that allows them to be well-rounded and environmentally uh, uh, conscious. Right. That for me is where I want to go and, and stop this idea that the environmental sciences are some department that, 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 that you send to, uh, to get those elective credits. <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, this is a whole other tangent we could, could go on, but, but don't have, have time to, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, given the, you know, wildfires and Lord knows what's to come this winter and, and everything else, I think, yeah, we certainly, it seems like need more of, of this, this type of thing out there for sure. Um, but, uh, 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 you know, Malik, it's been uh, really eye-opening to, to hear about, your vision, the, the work that, that you've done and some of the, the bumps along the road. And, and you know, like I said, I, I hope that our listeners, no matter what type of, of 
university they work at or what part of higher ed they're in, they can, um, you know, think about what, what this might look like on their campus or, you know, what pieces of this they can think about in their work. So thank you uh, very much for, for joining us today to talk about it. It's been my pleasure and uh, happy to, you know, talk again, whatever you guys need. As you can tell, I am very passionate because I do believe that the alternative to not having an educated society is unthinkable. I completely agree. Um, and I think, I think, I think all of us do. We wouldn't be what we, we wouldn't be doing what we do if, if not for that. Um, so yeah, thanks for joining us and listeners head down to higher to get links to the stuff we talked about today and subscribe to our show anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please consider giving us a review on Apple podcasts. It helps people find us and it lets us know what you think of the show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at HES podcast. Send us a tweet. We love talking to you. And don't forget to let us know if you want to be on the show. Higher Ed Social was created by Jackie Vitrano and me, Logan Bishop, and we're part of the ConnectEDU network, the first podcast network for higher education. Visit the website connectedu.network and subscribe to some awesome shows no matter where you work on campus. See you guys soon.